We talked the other night about um, the difficult states that come and bring suffering into our hearts and minds, and also about the beautiful states that we can open to and discover within us. The Buddha, of course, made a lot of lists of both. So on the side of the suffering, you're probably familiar with uh, lists like the hindrances, the kilesas, the taints. He talked a lot about these as ways to understand how we suffer and the, the deep roots of our suffering. And then he also talked about just as many, if not more, wholesome qualities, beautiful qualities of mind. And he put these into lists also. Lists like the Eightfold Path, the Five Spiritual Faculties, and the Four Brahmaviharas, and others. So as we read the teachings and understand how the path works, we start to see that the heart of the path is to grow the wholesome qualities of heart and mind and reduce the unwholesome. That's really what meditation is all about, and insight as well. And we, we see that the mind has so much potential in this way that we can pick the kinds of qualities we want our minds to manifest. And by practices oriented in those directions, we can shape the mind to be what we want it to be. Of course, it's still subject to impermanence, and it takes a lot of work and training to do that. But we can shape it in any of the wholesome directions that we choose. We can also shape it in the unwholesome directions, but not recommended. So as an example of this shaping in a wholesome direction, uh, there's a nun in Burma called the Metta Nun. And all she does all day, every day, is loving-kindness practice, um, including for all beings. So you can be pretty sure that in the hours of daylight in Burma, somebody is sending you metta. Which is kind of a nice reflection. So imagine what her mind is like having practiced metta day after day for years and years in her li- you know, simple life as a nun. It's a beautiful inspiration to me. And we can, we can do that ourselves in whatever direction we want. We can shape our minds by our choices. You may know uh, this story from the Native American tradition that was popular around the time of 9-11 called The Two Wolves. Have you heard The Two Wolves? Okay. The story is that a boy comes home from school one day and talks to his grandfather about how he's been picked on by some other boys at school. And it made him really mad, and he wanted to fight back and hurt them back the way they had hurt him. And he said, Grandfather, what should I do? And the grandfather said, I know this very well because there are two wolves inside me. One wolf is angry and violent and wants to rage against the injustice and hurt the people who have caused it. He said, but the other wolf is uh, peace-loving, loves harmony, wants to be friends with everyone and doesn't want to give in to hatred. He said, these two wolves are battling for control of my soul. And the young boy said, well, grandfather, which one will win? 
And he said, the one that I feed. I like this language because uh, the Buddha used very similar language. And the list that he talked about, particularly for meditators, and one that I think, uh, I don't say this very often, but I think this is worth memorizing. I think it would be good for you all to memorize this list and know it in your own experience, in your meditation practice, is the seven factors of awakening, sometimes translated as the seven factors of enlightenment. These factors of mind are a meditator's best friend. They will support you on your path and lead you to awakening. So the way the Buddha described them is that by feeding these seven factors of awakening, we are starving the five hindrances. And that is what leads to awakening or enlightenment. So this image of feeding and starving is right there in uh, the ancient texts. So I'll mention what these are. Uh, they're, they're usually described in the text in a certain order because they have a sequential unfolding in a way. So I'll mention them in that order. Mindfulness. If you don't get them all this time, you'll hear them later too. Investigation, energy, rapture, calm, concentration, and equanimity. These... This is a quote from the Buddha. They lead to awakening. Therefore, they're called factors of awakening. And he described all of them as maturing in release or liberation. That's their destination. As they get developed, that's where they take the mind. Just as all the rafters of a peaked house, you notice the rafters here, slant, slope, and incline towards the roof peak, So too, when a practitioner develops and cultivates the seven factors of awakening, she slants, slopes, or inclines to nibbana, the term for the highest kind of freedom that's possible. So in developing these factors, they lead us in the direction of freedom, liberation. They can also describe when they're brought to maturity, the mind as it's poised for that moment of awakening. The understanding in our tradition is that the mind gets developed in a certain way, and when it's in a perfect kind of state of balance, as we'll see from these factors, it's ripe for opening to a glimpse to the unconditioned, or nibbana. And that moment where the mind moves beyond the conditioned realm and contacts this unconditioned element called nibbana is what constitutes enlightenment or awakening in our tradition, in the Buddha's description and our understanding. So these are both the factors that lead to that, and they also describe when they're brought to maturity and balance the mind that's poised for that movement, for that opening to the unconditioned. The Buddha described them as uh, sequential, 
development, so I'll describe them in that way. But we also need to understand that they each one reinforces the others. And so you will experience them all, all along your journey. And they keep feeding back into one another, so there's kind of a circular quality as well. But when you kind of think of the whole path unfolding, there's a sequence that the mind goes through that these factors describe. So I'll talk about them in that way tonight. The reason that we put um, emphasis on these factors is that you want to be able to know when they're present in your meditation, and you want to know how they come into being and how they become strengthened. They're very wholesome in and of themselves. And so even if the journey doesn't carry all the way to enlightenment, the development of these qualities will be um, pillars of your practice. So having them alive in your mind, in a way, is the path of meditation. This is the way we develop um, through, through insight meditation. So, the first of these, just to give an overview, the first of these is mindfulness, which we've talked a lot about. It's been our our practice all through the week. And it starts the chain going. It's a little bit like when you have uh, a certain amount of milk at the right temperature and you put a yogurt culture in there. It starts the whole thing rippling into yogurt. So mindfulness works the same way. You put the culture of mindfulness into your mind, into your practice, and it starts to unfold the, these other factors. So mindfulness is the one that gets it going. In addition, the, the next three factors are energizing factors. We call them arousing factors. And the final three are pacifying factors or calming factors. So that's the kind of balance of the entire set. Mindfulness gets them going and also can help balance the energizing and pacifying factors. And that, that's the basic balance that this set of um, mental factors describes. So basically, we are aiming in, in the practice for a mix, a balance of energy and calm. And you'll hear us in the meditation instructions tell you to find that mix in your body posture. Find a posture that's relaxed, and that's the calming piece, but that's also upright, and that's the alert or energizing piece. So the body is expressing this kind of balance that we're developing in the mind. All right. The factor of mindfulness we've talked a lot about this week. Sally gave a whole talk on it a few nights ago, and I don't need to say a lot more about it. I just want to leave you with what I consider the definition of mindfulness. It, You can read a lot of books on mindfulness and not come to a clear definition. And so this is my personal opinion of what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is the factor of mind that knows what our present moment experience is. Just that simple. So in a way, you could say mindfulness answers the question, what's happening now? And so I think you can see that you can be in the present moment like the thief or the rock climber or the surgeon, 
but not be answering the question, what's happening now in my experience? You know, another way to think of it is um, a dog. Is a dog in the present? Almost all the time, right? Is a dog mindful? No. It does, it does not have that self-reflective quality that can say, this is my present moment experience and observe it. For instance, you open a can of food, right? It's 5.30, it's the dog's tea time. The smell goes out, the dog immediately bolts to the, to the dish. Does the dog ever go, oh, hearing, hearing, <laughs> perception of can opener, arising of aroma, Frisky's meatloaf, associated with mealtimes, pleasant, pleasant. Should I go to my bowl or not? No. The dog doesn't go through that process. So the dog lacks mindfulness. The baby is also very present, but hasn't yet developed this self-reflective quality. The baby is not answering the question, what's happening in my experience right now? But mindfulness answers that question. And so you'll see that it's a factor that we can turn on or not in any moment. It's not that hard. Carol mentioned, you know, how hard is it to feel the touch of your hands? It's not hard, but remembering to do it is hard. So this is mindfulness. It's a factor that has some wisdom, some intelligence in it, answering the question, what's happening now in my experience? So when we start to become mindful and pay attention to our experience, we lead directly into the next factor. We become interested. We become curious. We kind of want to know what's there. You know, when you start to wake up, you really have this, this alert interest, especially in a place like this, but anywhere, alert interest in what's happening in your experience. And this leads to the second factor of investigation. So investigation builds off the mindful connection and then it wants to look more deeply. It wants to know more deeply. What's the nature of this experience? Now we've talked in uh, different ways about this factor of investigation here in the retreat. There was a question earlier about using a life situation to inquire into and to contemplate. And and that can be appropriate and very useful in, um, in its own time and place. The main thing I want to say about this factor of investigation is that primarily it's not conceptual. We're investigating our experience, and we don't need so many words to do that. And give you a, give, give you an example. When you're feeling your breath, if you want to know your breath more intimately or in more detail, do you have to think about it? Or can you just kind of bring your attention closer to the sensations of breathing and feel it more deeply? That's the way this uh, factor of investigation is meant to work. It's meant to encourage us, based on mindfulness, to bring our attention right together with the thing that we're experiencing and know it that intimately. So that you know, the awareness and the focus come right together and then we know it as closely as it can be known. And you can see this kind of attention coming naturally when you get interested in something. When, for instance, you go by 
on your way to the dining hall and you see the mother robin in that nest, isn't your attention just right there? There's not a forced effort in it, but the interest just draws you in to what she's doing. Or when you see the sun setting on Discovery Point and those kind of rosy pink tones coming in, you just want to look. You want to be close to that experience. That's the factor of investigation. Now, we can assist this factor with some cues or some questions. For example, if the breath is a good anchor for you, a way to get more intimate with it, um, more continuous and more detail, is to see if you can experience with each in-breath the beginning, middle, and end of that in-breath. And if you can experience with each out-breath the beginning, middle, and end of the out-breath. And see if you can sustain that recognition, breath after breath after breath. This does two things. It makes for greater continuity in the mindfulness, so there's less tendency to stray. And it allows you to perceive more detail in the experience. Because when you start to look in that close away, you realize the in-breath isn't just one thing. You know, we start and we talk, just be with the in-breath. Okay, that's just one thing. You know, I'm with the in-breath. You look beginning, middle, end, and you see there are lots of little sensations arising and passing, you know, half moment by half moment in the course of an in-breath. And then the out, same with the out-breath, a lot of little sensations arising and passing that make up the out-breath. So in seeing this finer level of detail, you drop down and you start to see the truth of impermanence that Sally talked about last night. It's not like the in-breath is one solid thing that lasts for a while. The in-breath is actually made up of very rapidly changing sensations. Whether you're experiencing it at the belly or in the nose, as you look closely, you'll, you'll find that. This kind of attention, the Buddha described with a phrase that um, is quite lovely, called yoniso manasikara. And it's usually translated as wise attention. But in fact, the meaning of it is more uh, poignant than that. For those of you who know a little bit about Indian culture, yoni is the word for the female organ. And lingam is the word for the male organ. And if you go around to Hindu temples, you'll see lots of representations of lingams and yoni because they're sacred in Hindu worship. So yoni, we could translate here as um, the womb. So manasikara means attention. Yoni so manasikara literally means attention that's like the womb. So it's a kind of attention, it's not like a cold, clinical, you know, detached, microscopic observation. It's the way that a womb supports the, the baby that's growing inside it. It's um, nourishing it's embracing, and it's supportive. So that's the quality of attention that we want to bring into this investigation. Sally used the word a kind um, attention in mindfulness, and this word yoniso manasikara really um, kind of unfolds that. So this is the way to get um, more familiar with, with our ex- experience is to become very intimate with it and embrace it with this kind of nourishing and caring attention. 
We talked about this a little bit with emotions also, that when you want to understand an emotion well, you bring your attention to the um, experience in the body, you look for the flavor in the mind or heart, and you notice what thoughts are associated with it. So again, you're kind of getting to know the emotion in all the different ways it manifests by coming very close. And when we understand it in that way, we see how it's put together and we're not so uh, kind of enchanted by it or deluded by it. We understand its makeup because we've looked at it so closely and carefully. This factor of investigation comes out of you might say, the wisdom aspect of mindfulness. And so it is, people often say, well, how do I bring wisdom into uh, the meditation? How do I awaken that factor? Investigation is the premier way, is the direct way, because you're um, opening up the aspect of curiosity and wanting to understand as you look more closely and uh, investigate to feel more directly. So you're, you're directly awakening the wisdom faculty. In doing concentration practice, investigation is not that important a feature. Concentration practice is just designed to still. So one of my, one of my teachers, Pao Xayadao, who's a master at concentration practices, told me, um, don't investigate while you're doing this practice. It disturbs, you know, the deepening of the stillness. Turn off, it basically said, turn off the investigation faculty. But for Vipassana practice, where the, the whole purpose is to awaken wisdom, the investigation faculty is a key. You want to have it alive and growing. So this, this aspect of um, interest and curiosity, you can feel as you start to get into it, it brings up the next factor in this sequence, which is energy. When you're interested in something, you get, you get energized, don't you? It brings about physical energy, it brings about mental energy. And that's the next of the seven factors. This is not just random energy, however. It's energy directed to, you could say, the path. So... Uh, Sometimes the word that's used here is effort, the kind of effort toward the accomplishment of the path. And if you put the two together and think of it as energetic effort, you know, that's a nice way to hold this factor. The word in Pali is uh, virya, um, and it has some of this connotation because the word vira, uh, which is the root of virya, means hero. So you can kind of think of a hero or heroine, you know, arousing great energy to carry out a really difficult task. And this word vira uh, is the same root as the Latin viral, the English word viral, which has a root uh, in Latin. It's the same root as the word hero. So you put all that together and you kind of get the sense that the, the, this factor of, of viria, which we are translating here as energy, could be effort, energetic effort, ardor, enthusiasm, courage, determination. It has all those aspects of giving yourself wholeheartedly to the work uh, of meditation that you're carrying out. 
So this is the way the Buddha described it. Energy is aroused for the abandoning of unwholesome states and the development of wholesome states. One is strong, firm, not shirking from the responsibility of cultivating wholesome states. So, I hope you get the sense of the heroic quality of this undertaking. It's what all of you have been doing day by day in being here. I mentioned the other night all the wholesome qualities that you've all been generating, working on, you know, during the days, the moment by moment of practice. And this virya really demonstrates that. The moments you've created of mindfulness, of loving kindness, of patience, of determination, of wisdom, of forbearance, of patience, of courage. These are all kind of summed up in this quality of virya, the moment by moment effort. As we, as we confront the difficulties in the mind, the emotions, the kilesas, and transform them into wisdom and compassion. That's a heroic journey. Now, the degree of virya that we come to this path with, you know, depends on our level of motivation, which depends on our kind of inspiration and our understanding of what we're doing here, what the path is about and what it means to us. So there are very many, you know, gradations of motivation among practitioners. Some people, you know, find the path and go into a cave for 12 years like Ani Tenzin Palmo did. I don't know if you've read her story. She's an English woman who ordained in the Tibetan tradition, literally spent 12 years in a cave in India um, practicing. So that's the outcome of a great deal of inspiration and motivation. And you look in other fields and you see people doing incredible kinds of training. I just read an article about a Kenyan athlete who won the marathon in the 2008 Beijing Olympics. And the kind of training that he went through was unbelievable. You know, 24-mile runs like every day and climbing, you know, these very steep hills as a part of that at a high altitude so that when he came down to Beijing near sea level, he would be so pumped up, you know, from his high-altitude training And he would do that week after week, year after year, in order to stay in shape, to run and win marathons. And he, I think he um, created a world record time in winning the marathon in in Beijing. Or my particular sports obsession is tennis. And I used to, actually, I love the generation of the Sampras-Agassi rivalry. So Andre Agassi used to train in Las Vegas and he worked out with a guy who was an athletic coach at um, University of Nevada at Las Vegas named Gil Reyes. And Reyes was a big, strong, you know, inspiring guy. So Reyes would take Agassi out around the hills of Las Vegas in the middle of summer and make him run up the hills, up the hills, up the hills until he vomited. And that, that was his training. And once, I guess, he threw up, he was able to call it a day and, and go home have an energy drink. <laughs> so people do these incredible things only, I mean, merely for money and fame. They're not even trying to get enlightened. <laughs> so, you know, look at the energy we could, we could put in. 
So one of the teachers who was strongest um, in our kind of circle in stressing this energy factor was a Burmese master named Saida Upandita. He was the descendant, basically, the Dharma heir of Mahasi Sayadaw. Mahasi Sayadaw had many Dharma heirs, but Saida Upandita took over his main monastery in Rangoon, and he was a real Dhamma warrior. I didn't practice with him personally, but Carol did and survived to tell the tale. So we bow to her endurance. <laughs> so Saida Upandita expected that if you practiced with him, you would basically practice 18 hours a day, no, sorry, 20 hours a day and sleep four hours a night. And uh, I started sitting a three-month course at the time when... Uh, a number of teachers were practicing with him and were teaching in that format. So I was sitting with Joseph and Sharon at, at IMS, and they were practicing in that style, and that was their instruction to me. Practice 20 hours a day and get your sleep down to four. And I didn't think I could do it, but when I went in for an interview every day, they asked me how many hours I'd sat, how many hours I'd walked, and how many hours I'd slept. So there was kind of no escaping. <laughs> And so I just kept working and working and working it, and I did get my sleep down to those four hours a night, and the rest of the day was mindful practice. It was very powerful. It was a very powerful experience. Um, I don't practice that way now. <laughs> you know, I'm a little older and uh, maybe a little gentler. But I'm really glad that I, that I did that at the time when I was young, you know, and I had that kind of energy and, uh, and fervor. But it's not the only way to understand effort. Another way to understand it is just as perseverance. Just continuing. I love this quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi, one of the great uh, modern scholars and translators of the old texts. He's an American uh, monk. There are only two requirements for you to reach liberation. One is that you start, and the other is that you continue then the outcome is guaranteed. So this, this we can all do. We can start and we can continue. Then that will happen. There's a great Tibetan yogi, maybe the most revered yogi in all of Tibetan history, named Milarepa, from the 11th century. He's a direct descendant of uh, many Kagyu masters. And Milarepa was um, given a pretty hard time by his teacher who was Marpa. But he eventually incorporated all the teachings and went off to practice on his own way in the remote mountains in a cave. And he practiced alone for years and years. And it's said that he attained the highest realization within one lifetime through his dedication to his practice. You'll know him in uh, Tibetan art because he's usually wearing a white just a white cloth robe. He, he practiced Tumo, so the heat, generation of inner heat, so that he could live out in the mountains all through winter. And it's said that he lived on a diet of nettles, which he pulled and then cooked up into a broth. And so sometimes you'll see him with green skin in those paintings. And uh, he, had, he had two very famous disciples, uh, Gampopa and Rechungpa. And it's said that when Gampopa had received all the instructions that he needed from Milarepa before he went off to practice, 
he'd started off down the mountain path, off to find his own cave, place of solitude. And he got partway and Milarepa said, wait, there's one more last instruction, one more pith instruction that I want to give you. He called Gampopa back. Gampopa came up to Milarepa, said, here's the final instruction. Milarepa turned around, flipped up the hem on his white cotton robe, and showed Gampopa his buttocks, which were extremely calloused. It said, it said the calluses were as hard as the hoof of a camel. And then Milarepa said to Gampopa, there is nothing more profound than meditating on this pith instruction. The, the qualities in my mind stream have arisen through my having meditated so persistently that my buttocks have become like this. You must also give rise to such heartfelt perseverance. So just the power of continuing is so important. It, it's all we need to do. Saida Utejaniya, who I think we've mentioned a few times, Carol has sat with in Burma and Sally and I sat with on the East Coast, puts this in a nice way also. I'd like to read you his quote. Right effort means to keep reminding yourself to be aware. Right effort is persistent effort. It is not energy used to focus hard on something. It is effort which is simply directed at remaining aware. It is not difficult to be aware or mindful. It is difficult to maintain it continuously. For this, you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. When we have energy in our practice, as you may have felt this afternoon, things become very vibrant and alive. And when things become alive, it's satisfying in some way. It's kind of, it kind of creates a, a sort of happiness in our experience. And that leads to the next factor in this sequence, which is called rapture. Rapture is a translation of the Pali word um, piti. And I think rapture is a really bad translation because it has, A, it has so many connotations from the Christian fundamentalist viewpoint, but B, it denotes a state of kind of intense ecstasy and self-surrender that isn't in necessarily in the word PT. So it's a little over-dramatized. And maybe better um, translations would be um, a delighted interest or joyful attention. So PT refers to this quality when the meditation is kind of waking up and you start to really enjoy being with your object. You know, whatever it is, whether it's the breath or the sounds of nature or the sight of the robin or the ease that might come in your body as you relax. It's finding delight in the meditation itself. So it's a special kind of joy. It's not like getting joyful because you're thinking about Um, the new raise you're going to get when you go back to your job at the end of the retreat. It's not that kind of joy. It's a joy in the present moment coming from the meditation. So we find that that we, in in this enjoyment with the object, we find it's it's where we want to be. It's not forced anymore. We're not having to apply a lot of effort to stay with it. But there's this... um, 
growing pleasure in being with the object, being in the moment. So a number of people have mentioned this in, you know, in the interviews, this quality of enjoyment coming into the practice, and that's the quality of piti, or rapture. Generally, a very pleasant experience, as you know, denoted one of the synonyms is joy. Um, but it is often accompanied by physical expressions because the energy has preceded it. And the physical expressions of the energy, there can be uh, momentary jolts of energy. There can be a sense of showering energy that starts from above and comes through. There can be uh, all-pervading energy where the whole body feels um, alive with the energy that's coming through. And sometimes the degree of energy can be a little too strong to be pleasant. And it turns into a little bit of a burden, this manif- the physical manifestation of the factor of, of PT. So when that happens, um, you know, it's something to talk to one's teacher about, but the uh, encouragement is just to stay with it. It's not to back off from the process that's brought you there. It's just to bear the energy for a while because as the practice continues, it starts to smooth out and the rapture will become um, less burdensome as the meditation continues to deepen. But essentially, one has discovered um, a happiness that comes from the mind's relation to its own experience. And this provides kind of a gateway to the next factor in the path, which is calm. The happiness has come into the meditation and we stop having to look outside so much for our satisfaction or fulfillment. The fulfillment starts to come in through the inner experience of the meditation. And as that happens, this searching, questing, craving, longing that keeps us stirred up, all that starts to settle because the fulfillment has been found internally. So this quality of calm uh, is the next factor. And now we're moving out of the energizing factors, the three energizing factors of investigation, energy, and rapture, into the calming factors. And this is the first one. So the experience of calm starts to come in, and we feel it both in the body and in the mind. It's significant that we feel it in the body. Often when we come into meditation, the body is kind of a jangle of nerves, we've accumulated a lot of tension through kind of the overstimulation of the culture and the overwork of our particular society. And so we come in and the body is often vibrating with uh, too high an energy level, you know, that it's accumulated and hasn't known how to release. So as the calm starts to settle, it's felt through the body as well. So the body can really relax, maybe for the first time, This word um, in Pali uh, is pasadi, for the calm, and it's sometimes translated as relaxation. It's almost like for the first time now the body can really let go and settle down and relax. So 
then we can come more and more fully into this present moment with a sense of um, peacefulness, both mentally and physically. So thoughts are not stirred up as much as before. It doesn't mean they stop, but they're coming at a more uh, leisurely pace. Um, We usually don't, because the body is calming and relaxing, there's not as much pain in the body. And the calming also means that the kind of flood of uh, difficult emotions has slowed down quite a bit. And the feeling is like we've kind of crossed this stormy um, ocean and we've come into a safe harbor. And there's a sense, oh, I just want to kind of rest in this safe harbor. And there's this um, very nice poem by Emily Dickinson that uh, points to this. This is an excerpt from a poem of hers called Wild Nights. Futile the winds to a heart in port. Done with a compass, done with the chart, rowing in Eden. And this is a little bit what it feels like. We can float on this place of calm. Rowing in Eden is this sense of having arrived in this um, safe harbor. It's only temporary. You know, this is not the end of the road, but it's a very nice kind of turning of a corner, a nice discovery. So we find that this peace and ease has always been available to us, but we've been stirring it up with our own reactivity. And now we've found a way not to stir. And we find it's always available when we're not stirring. There's this very beautiful meditation instruction um, from Ajahn Amaro, who's an American monk, uh, sorry, an English monk. He's now the abbot of Amravati Monastery in England. And at a certain point in a retreat, he'll give this instruction. This is the only instruction he'll give in a morning session. Rest in the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. Or then notice what disturbs it. That's it. So once we discover there is this access to peace and ease, we can simply rest there. And this is a really satisfying uh, thing to discover, that this is possible for us. Because in a way, it's part of what we've been looking for all along. I think there is a really deep um, longing for peace in in our life. And this is the corner in turning in meditation where we discover it. Sometimes it's, um, it's not so uh, striking in the beginning. And people will be going along and have had a few days of settling in, a little bit of turbulence, and then they'll come to an interview and report, well, there's really n- nothing going on now. You know, I was really restless for a few days and... Um, my body was aching. Oh, yeah, body feels okay. And, you know, there's really not much going on. Yeah, I'm so sorry to report this, but there's not much happening in my practice. And so I'll ask them, well, is it basically peaceful? Oh, yeah, it's pretty peaceful, but, you know, there's not much going on. You know, it's basically calm. Yeah, but, you know, it's kind of boring because um, there's not, nothing happening. And it was kind of, you know, I thought I'd have more emotions to purify and process. 
And so it takes a little bit of time to realize the importance, the significance of this. Because we're often so accustomed to intensity, you know, big highs and big lows, when those go away and the experience takes on a, you know, a little bit of a neutral feeling, we don't quite know what to make of it. And sometimes an, an element of boredom comes in. Oh, nothing happening. So this is like the first touch of calm. It may seem boring because for once the experience is kind of neutral. It's not like insanely great and it's not like crazy bad. And we're not used to that neutral. So boredom is basically aversion to the neutral. But when we can see this, oh, there's some potential here. You know, the Buddha said peace and calm were pretty good things to develop. And this is just the beginning. So trust in that and let yourself um, go into it. So there's, there's a cartoon that kind of sums up this state of um, perhaps disappointment. It's a Gay and Wilson cartoon about uh, two Zen monks who are sitting in a zendo. One's a little older and one's a little younger. And the older monk is leaning over and whispering something to the younger monk. And the caption says, nothing happens next. This is it. (laughs) That's sort of this stage of just beginning to touch the calm. But we just need to have the trust that this is actually a really wholesome unfolding. And just to rest in it. You don't need to do anything with it. You don't need to try to pump up the calm either. You just need to trust and rest in that. One of the Buddha's statements that I really like in in relation to this is the comment that peace is the highest happiness. Generally in Western culture, I don't think we believe this. I think we generally look for something more intensely pleasurable, some kind of high that's higher than just peace. And we think that's the highest happiness. The Buddha said really clearly, peace is the highest happiness. And I think this is an important lesson in human psychology. This is truly what satisfies, finding the access to peace. As we really start to feel it and trust in it, we start to open the door to contentment. We don't have to run around outside looking for more things, looking for special experiences, looking for intense highs or gratification. We start trusting in the fact we can just rest in this peace, which is always available when we don't disturb it. We also discover that it's possible to encourage this peace. In the Anapanasati Sutta, which describes the meditation on the breath, the Buddha has these very nice lines. I shall breathe in tranquilizing the bodily formation. I shall breathe in tranquilizing the mental formation. And same for breathing out. So we find we can use the breath to bring about this factor of tranquility or calm in both mind and body. So as we settle into this calm and trust in it and let go of so many other wrong kinds of effort and craving, 
then the mind starts to collect within itself. It's as though we can just let the mind drop into our experience of, you could say, the whole body. And as it drops in that way, it starts to collect, come together, and unify. This is the next factor on the sequence, which is concentration. Concentration is the translation of the Pali word samadhi. And again, it's not a very good, not a very good translation. Because in English, concentration means I'm going to take a narrow focus. Don't distract me with anything else. You know, I want to focus on my timepiece here and uh, read the luminous dial. Don't distract me with any questions about um, tomorrow. Samadhi doesn't have this sense of exclusive focus. Samadhi refers to the mind that has come together, which could happen from a narrow focus like the breath, but it could also happen from a very broad focus like sounds. So samadhi is this unification of mind where we've basically given up these jumps into past and future, you know, into analyzing and rehearsing and planning and all that extra movement. We've let go of all that. The energy is collecting naturally through the power of calm into the mind and body coming together. And we find when that happens, the mind feels different. It feels stable. It's not swayed so much. It's not so restless. It feels steady. We can stay in touch with the present moment, moment after moment for extended periods of time. It has a sense of well-being. It feels good when that happens. And it feels strong. By recollecting all this energy that we've been sending out, the mind discovers its own natural strength. And this is a great, um, a great feeling. There's a mistaken kind of understanding that concentration comes from a lot of effort. And I think maybe Sally mentioned this the other night. It's not about efforting. The proximate cause of concentration is happiness. So again, it just points to this relaxing within trusting the sense of well-being within and letting that collect all that energy. So concentration has um, two key benefits. Number one, it feels good. The mind feels strong. It feels peaceful. It feels able to accomplish things. It's an access to peace. This is from the Dalai Lama. Inner peace is the key. If you have inner peace, the external problems do not affect your deep sense of peace and tranquility. So samadhi is a big component of inner peace. The second great benefit is it leads to insight. When the mind is restless and moving all over the place, it can't see so clearly. You know, it's driven by craving and restlessness and aversion, all those factors that Carol described which blind us to to clear seeing. As it settles and collects and we turn our attention somewhere, we see things the way they are. So it's kind of like we've been riding, we've been standing outside on a, on a merry-go-round 
No, sorry. We've been going around on a merry-go-round, and we're on one of the horses, going round and round. And one of our friends is standing by the side of the platform holding up a newspaper. But we're going by so quickly we can't read it. Merry-go-round is just going, going, going. But with samadhi, it starts to slow down. And it slows down and it comes and stop in front of our friend who's holding up the newspaper. And then we can read it. And it says, life is change. If you hang on, you suffer. The way to peace is letting go. And then we get it. The insight comes when the mind is still. We can get it and let go. This quality of concentration can be developed to uh, really great degrees. The Buddha said that the range of the concentrated mind is one of the imponderables. One cannot even reflect on the possibilities of a concentrated mind. So they lead to these uh, states of deep absorption called jhana. They lead to psychic powers. Um, and But for us, well-being and insight are enough. Then, when the mind has become strong in this way, that concentrated mind is not so moved by the passing experiences of pleasure and pain, and that leads to the seventh of the factors, which is equanimity. Equanimity refers to a mind that is not bothered by the transitory blips of pleasant and unpleasant experience. Mostly our, our mind is spent um, in normal sort of life being rocked by the jolts of pleasure and pain. And it creates that sense of restlessness and instability. When the mind becomes concentrated, its strength gives it stability in the face of the movements of pleasure and pain. And that's expressed in this mental quality of equanimity, meaning we're not bothered by the momentary flows of pleasant and unpleasant. Now, for a long time, I thought this equanimity meant um, not feeling. I thought it meant that you got turned off emotionally because nothing mattered to you or nothing moved you anymore. But that was really a misunderstanding. In fact, in the early part of my practice, I tried to emulate what I thought that goal was. I ended up repressing my feelings in a way that wasn't helpful at all. But what happens is, as you find this quality of equanimity, you discover that there's a kind of um, ease and balance in being with the waves of life. So I like the word balance even more than the word equanimity here. And when we are in a state of balance, inner balance, then actually the heart opens much more easily to the beautiful emotions. I mean, think about it yourself. When you felt in this week here, at times when you felt kind of peaceful and balanced and and well, didn't the heart respond more easily with love, with happiness, with joy, with compassion? That's the pointing of equanimity. We get this inner balance and we feel, ah, the burden is off. And when the burden is off, the heart can respond. So it's not a dead unfeeling, uncaring place at all. It's a place of a lot of richness, a lot of depth, and a lot of openness. This quality of equanimity is at the end of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's the culmination of the seven factors. 
It's also the last factor in the list of the paramis. It's the last factor in the Brahmaviharas. It's the last factor in this list from the Vasudhimaga called the Progress of Insight that describes the journey to awakening. It's the last in all these lists. So I would say that it's the it's the um, fruition in mundane terms of the path and the closest mundane mental state to the unconditioned. So it's just kind of the best approximation to nibbana that we can that we can make um, by our effort. So when we have developed all of these, the mindfulness starts them. Investigation, energy, and rapture pick the energy up. Calm, concentration, and energy settle it. When these are in balance, there's the stillness of concentration and there's the alertness of energy and investigation. The mind is in this perfect poise for meditation. This is where meditation goes really well. It goes well from the point of view of feeling well-being and trust and confidence and happiness, and it's the platform for insight. So it's from this point that the mind can not only see into the three characteristics that Sally described last night, but also where it can, if the grace comes of that moment, open to the unconditioned, to that moment of enlightenment or awakening. There's no way to force or, or make that opening by effort. All we can do by effort is to develop these seven factors and bring them into that balance and then rest there. And then grace can provide that opening into awakening. So I'll just close with this um, quotation from uh, the Buddha on these factors. Bhikkhus, these seven factors of awakening, when developed and cultivated, lead to peace, to direct knowledge, to awakening, to nibbana. They are noble and emancipating. They lead the one who acts upon them to the complete destruction of suffering. Whoever has been liberated, is liberated, or will be liberated in the future, All will do so by overcoming the five hindrances, by firmly establishing their minds in the four foundations of mindfulness, and by cultivating the seven factors of awakening in their true nature. So let's just sit for a minute together, please. These seven factors of awakening, when developed and cultivated, lead to peace, to direct knowledge, to awakening, to nibbana. They are noble and emancipating. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
dot org slash donate.